Welcome to the Joan Podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Vittengel. Joan is a place of truth and connection, a place to discuss mental health, trauma, struggle, and the many difficulties brought to us in life. Through my own journey, I struggled to open up with others about my difficult life experiences, but once I did, I began to see that everyone is on their own journey in one way or another. This podcast has taught me more than I could have imagined, but most importantly, it has taught me that vulnerable connection through storytelling is one of the most powerful ways that we heal ourselves, heal each other, and thus heal the world. I am so honored that the guests of this show have trusted me to bring their stories to you. And so I hope you enjoy the second season of Joan. Today's podcast guest hardly needs an introduction if you are even remotely in the mental health, healing, spiritual world of Instagram. I'm speaking to Dr. Nicole LaPera, aka the holistic psychologist. We speak all about kind of everything. Um, we go into her own journey, um, her story, her sort of upbringing, her uh, experience coming out as a lesbian, um, her own experience with panic attacks, all of the diagnoses she received, medication, um, all of that. And then we really dive into um, kind of her expertise on emotional trauma, um, childhood trauma, um, Again, kind of exploring both of our mutual interest in spirituality and how that plays a role in um, healing. We talk about, she tells me about a story about her sister. She retells me um, her sister's story. And uh, it's just a great episode. And I'm so excited and I'm so honored to have her on. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Okay, great. So we are officially recording. And I am talking to. Dr. Nicole LaPera, who really hardly needs an introduction. Um, but Nicole, I mean, it's insane. You're following. So I've actually been following you for a long time. I don't know if you remember this. I actually did a one-on-one with you. I do. I do remember that, Kelly. A while ago now. I mean, it feels like eons and decades. I was just making up two words, eons and decades. Um, though I do remember sometime last year, a year and a half ago, I believe. It was. It was about a year and a half ago. Um, so do you mind, I actually like to have you introduce yourself. So you'll, you'll do a much better job than, than I can. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So who am I? Um, I kind of talk in terms of my evolution because I think in a lot of ways that is making me, you know, into the person that I am today. So on a personal side of things, I think like many of us and someone who struggled um, emotionally. My my main emotion that I always felt really stuck in um, was anxiety. It was the experience that I can remember quite literally as long as I have memories. I was a little girl, scared of the world, hiding under tables. Um, I, I, I acknowledge it now as quite intuitively, whatever that age is where people start to wonder what you're going to be when you grow up. You would have probably heard me saying some version of, I want to be a psychologist. And I understand that now that that was mainly driven, I say intuitive, because I do believe it was my, you know, kind of like soul speaking, driving me into that, really based around a deep desire to understand, uh, to understand myself, as I think a lot of us, you know, kind of originate those desires, but mainly also to understand other people, you know, really becoming aware of how different, you know, people in my family were, my peers were, as soon as that ages where you spend more time with your peers. 
And I felt very compelled or driven to understand the mind of humans. And again, like I said, what makes them different. So flash forward many years in time, um, I follow that journey. I become a clinical psychologist. Um, I open up a practice that was quite successful in Philadelphia, and I'm trudging along in life. And it really took what I now understand is, you know, my dark night of the soul, um, the result of years of conditioned ways that I was operating, um, really keeping me stuck um, in many patterns. However, the same patterns I was seeing now that I was starting to accumulate many client hours with other people, I was seeing a lot of similarities. And I really came, I came through disempowerment actually first before I became empowered um, because I, I started to realize how incredibly stuck we are as a collective. So here I am as the human in the room, right? The clinician, the doctor that's supposed to be teaching these tools to create change to my clients, if you will. And if I'm honest, I was quite unsuccessful and I was quite unsuccessful in my outside life. So after, you know, kind of doing, diving into my own healing journey, trying to understand um, what was keeping me stuck, um, I developed what I now refer to as, you know, a holistic version of psychology, um, one in which we acknowledge the mind, the body, and the soul, and really coming to realize that it's imbalances and conditioned ways of being in any and all of these areas. Um, that are namely keeping us stuck. So of course, from there, I birthed the idea of beginning to share um, this new awareness on the thing that we now know, right, as social media, really as an outlet um, for myself and coming to then be known as the holistic psychologist really began my, my fuller journey into embodying this holistic healing, this way of being, and then really shifting into beginning to teach um, the collective, which now hails from, right? I think when we when we had a session, you were you yourself were even, you know, on the other side of the pond, if you will, and really starting to teach these concepts quite universally. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's so much um, that I want to unpack here. Uh, there's like so many points that you were hitting on that I was like, oh, oh, okay, where do I start? Um, okay, let's actually start. So let's go back to the beginning. Um, and a huge part of this podcast, I think that's maybe slightly different from most podcasts kind of in the same arena is that I really like, it really is a storytelling podcast, you know, like we'll definitely get into um, some questions more so with you because you're an expert as opposed to most other episodes or most other guests. But um, I really want to dive into like your story and your experience with, um, with, with your struggles. And so can you tell me a bit about your childhood, your family and your upbringing? Absolutely. I think that's, you know, very much where a lot of our quote unquote struggles really do originate for most of us. Um, it was also the point of a bit of confusion um, on my end. Um, and what I mean when I say that is because from an outsider's view, in a lot of ways, you know, I came from the pretty prototypical home, uh, middle class. My dad went to work, you know, had a very consistent, stable job. Uh, my mom stayed at home. In terms of the family structure, I actually was a, uh, a late in life child. Um, my parents had already had my brother and my sister who were 18 and 15 years older than me, um, respectively, when I was born. Um, the family running joke is I was the oops child, not necessarily planned, but here I am anyway. Um, and so when I was, I was born into the home, my, my brother was more or less out of the home. He was 18, you know, 19, 20, you know, kind of evolving away. And the family structure was really my mom and my dad and my sister. 
Um, and in many ways, from a very early age, like I said, I was very aware of anxiety present. Um, I was the little girl who was very socially shy um, to the extent that I would hide behind my mother's leg when we were walking up the block in public, you know, where someone would see me, my neighbors would see me, even people I knew. Um, I was really, really shy. I was really scared. I had a running litany of worries of things that could happen. I had a lot of health-related anxiety. Um, my mom struggled with, with chronic ailments early in life, with migraines, with headaches, with low moods that kept her in bed, with knee aches and pains. And upon my birth, like those evolved into eventually becoming heart issues, heart surgery. So you know, illness was, was very much an alive topic in my family, with my sister included. So my sister suffered... Um, a pretty cataclysmic uh, uh, um, asthma, I was going to say anxiety because I'm on the A's, asthma attack um, as a child that actually resulted in her needing to be trached. Um, she had pretty severe scoliosis. Um, so there was just a lot of actual health issues that were alive in my family, which contributed, I believe, to you know my constant worry of my mom being sick, my dad being sick. Um, so anxiety was very much part of the story for me growing up. Um, like I said, in many ways, though, we, we came from, I was very, I was very active as a child. I was athletic. Um, I was able to excel in school. So very early on, I was busy. I was taken to all of the places to do all of the things. And of course, in the areas that I was performing highly, you know, I kept engaging in them. I became the athlete. I became the A student. Um, and in many ways, I now look back and I understand that there was a function of those roles that I played um, in terms of connection in my family. Because outside of, I think, the unified experience of anxiety, you know, because it wasn't just me who was anxious. I have memories of my mom. If my dad, who was very, very regular coming home at work, quite literally, Kelly, at the same time every night. So on those few occasions, right, where dad was 15 minutes late. I actually have memories of my mom, you know, not directly saying anything necessarily, but appearing, experiencing what I now know is anxiety. So again, my household was anxious. Um, and mm. I believe now looking back, a lot of that anxiety revolved again around very real health, health related traumas that my family experienced that predate it, even me, um, but that also, you know, involved once I was there. Um, and it was really the point of connection that that we had was around that anxiety. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what was your, so you said that like through, so it was through high school, you were kind of identifying as being this like athletic, that's where you were getting your kind of validation from. Is that right? Absolutely. So yeah, so for me, sports started very early um, and my, my family got me involved in pretty much everything and I gravitated toward the things I was good with. So by the time I was in high school, I was really involved in softball in particular. I was do, you know, playing all of the, the travel sports because my eye was really on playing, playing athletics in college um, at, you know, obviously a, a highly academically ranked school. So yeah, high school for me was very much about, however, something I should mention, by the time I got to high school, um, that social anxiety that I had was reminting. So I wasn't really the shy um, high schooler anymore. I had the friends. I, you know, did all the things socially, though I was very much still achievement oriented. I was making sure I was getting the A's because it was very clear 
um, that my family wanted me to get into the good college, which would end up being Cornell, you know, ultimately. And I was also very motivated and dedicated myself to softball. So a lot of my life was very performance driven. Yeah, through through high school. And, and I know that you are a member of the LGBTQ plus community, correct? Correct. And when did you first know that? Mm. I didn't. Um, actually, I wasn't, I don't, my story is not one of, you know, having the awareness um, of my sexuality. I, I identify as a lesbian. I have my current partner, whom I'm married to is, is a woman. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't, I think we all have unique stories of this. So for me, it wasn't, you know, kind of in my awareness. I had the boyfriend in, in high school. I had my first, I guess what I knew when I had my first same-sex relationship, which was, my sophomore year, I was 19 years old at Cornell, and it was with someone that I was um, that I was on the softball team with, and that began as you know a very intense friendship that then shifted over into attraction. And at that point, while I knew and I was engaging in in a relationship with a woman, I didn't share it. Um, I didn't share it with my family. I didn't share those type of things with my family. Like I said earlier, my family really didn't bond over, you know, emotion, deeper emotional things, relationships, I just kind of kept that out. And I, I didn't even share it with my with my close friends. And I understand this now, it wasn't necessarily that I was shameful about it. It just was something that I didn't really share. I never really talked about relationships in general. So when the relationship shifted into being one with a female, um, I never really talked about it. So from that point forward, I never, I never, I just dated women consistently. Um, I did end up coming out with within that year um, because I was discovered, not necessarily because I offered it um, to those around me. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> so that wasn't really, um, it doesn't sound like that was as much of a struggle for you as it, as it oftentimes is for a lot of people from what I've heard. Oh, I mean, there's, there were some struggle aspects. I left out the point of discovery, which happened due to some events at my sister's wedding. Um, that really turned into pretty, pretty negative around once my, my mom in particular became aware that there was a possible romantic nature, um, to my relationship. There were a couple moments of, of explosive, of explosions. Um, uh, my mom didn't speak to me when my mom becomes angry. She does something that I refer to as icing. Um, so there was the entire summer between my sophomore and my junior year where I was living in the family home and my mother was not speaking to me. So there were moments where it was quite difficult. Um, at that time, you know, it appeared to me because she didn't accept myself, my relationship. Um, once that particular relationship ended and I had my following one again with a female and I brought that, that person home, my mom shifted into acceptance. And honestly, it was never even spoken about. Um, so yeah, there were painful moments. I think in some ways I'm still unpacking um, the extent to which those moments affected me. Um, part of what I was, how I was operating at the time was a, through what I call a process of dissociation. I learned very early that how to handle the very overwhelming big feelings in my childhood was to check out or was to go on my spaceship, like I call it, um, to separate myself from the feelings that were really too, too big for me. So in a lot of ways, when I say I'm still unpacking it, it's because during that period of time when I was living in the home, right, my mom was just going about her day acting as if I wasn't there, I was really dissociated. So I was really disconnected from any of the pain that I'm sure was there 
um, at the time. So what I mean when I say I'm still unpacking it right now that I've healed my dissociation, I'm present in my physical, my emotional body. Uh, I'm still trying to understand, I think, the remnants of, of any wounding that I might be carrying from that. Because I imagine it's there. Um, but like I said, I was very savvy at not letting myself feel or appear to be bothered at the time. Right, right. Understandable. Um, okay, so at this point, you're in college and you're kind of, you know, doing the college thing as most most of us do, at least in the U.S., um, <laughs> And so when, so were you studying psychology at this time? I was studying. I went in as a declared psychology major, like the nerd that I am. I was on the path because I ultimately, I knew at that time to practice before licensure laws um, expanded a little bit. The PhD, you know, the the license in clinical psychology was really the only means to practice. So yeah, I I was dedicated to, to seeing schooling through to receiving because my intention was to have the private practice as opposed to some other people who want to, you know, do other things. I I really didn't want to set up that practice. So yeah, I was declared and I was getting, taking every psychology class that I could. Yeah. Okay. Um, so when did your, uh, I was about to say dark night as I think we both refer to it as, um, when did you kind of start to struggle then post you know, you mentioned some some stuff through childhood, and then you kind of came out of your shell. It sounds like through high school and college, and then um, and then I know that you had a really really difficult time. So when did that all start? Yeah, so that didn't start. You know, and, and I think I, I speak about the dissociation and the coping through achievement because that kept me going. Um, that kept mm-hmm. me, you know, powering through, plowing through, focusing on the next. You know, the next level in my, you know, in my schooling, the next licensure exam I was going to take, the next experience that I could say yes to, because that was something I was really interested in while I was in school. And even still now, obviously, the way that I work, I wanted to learn all of the ways, all of the tools of working with other humans. So I kept myself distracted. Um, And I did so just successfully, or so I thought, Um, until I got to the place where school was no longer and where I was operating like most of us do. I had the job. Like I said, I had the practice. I was still confused for a couple years into that, however, because I had no energy. I didn't really love what I was doing. If I'm perfectly honest, I was living for the weekend. And if I'm honest, everyone I talked to around me, Kelly, was feeling the same. So for a long time, I had all of these running narratives where I would tell myself, oh, well, by now I'm reaching 30. This is, must be what 30 looks like, right? Everyone around me is moaning at the jobs that they have. So I don't believe, right, that jobs can be fulfilling. So I'm just trudging along. And it really took until I had some pretty scary physical symptoms um, starting to break through, which involved, I started to faint out of nowhere, I started to forget my words mid-sentence in the therapy room, which was where I was my most present, um, that I really started to question things, question how well I was. Um, and in that questioning, I think as a lot of us do, my first attempt at diagnosing myself was diving on the internet to try to figure out what was wrong. At this point, I really believed something was probably wrong in my brain, like there was actually something structural happening. I couldn't figure out why else one would begin to faint out of nowhere. Um, And that's really what began my exploration into what was going on with me, um, which led me into understanding, you know, what was going on with me, 
was that all of these imbalances, all of these conditioned ways of being, and really, you know, the soul that I that I am being not expressed for so long was finally screaming out for attention. So it really began, like I said, when as a lot of us, I think when I transitioned into what I thought my life was going to look like day in and day out. Um, and then when I just continued to have those nagging, you know, feelings of unfulfillment that then really catalyzed um, into I started to get physically ill. Yeah. Were, so were you ever, you said you were self-diagnosing, were you ever given any kind of proper label or diagnoses? In terms of, I mean, I've been through the, the mental wellness system and I've had uh, generalized anxiety disorder, um, panic disorder, OCD. Um, so those are diagnoses that I collected. Mm-hmm. I, I, I went through, I was, you know, in the treatment rooms, I was on the medication, I was on Celexa, I was on um, Clonopin for my panic attacks. Um, in terms of medical diagnoses, I mean, I had chronic uh, gut issues, I had chronic headaches, I had chronic allergy issues, all of these mapped on to what I saw in my family. So for yeah. me, for a very long time, right, I think a lot of us, I saw this in my lineage. So I believed that it was genetically based, right, and that I was, I, my, I, I was, it was inevitable, put it that way, that I was going to get these things. And that was the belief that I entertained and that I was taught was the truth for a very long time. Yeah. You know, it's that it's so interesting. This is something that I think we could dive deeper into, but just how, I mean, similarly, like, and I think so many people are given a diagnosis of, even if it's just anxiety, you know, like my parents, both my dad's a doctor, my mom's a nurse, my whole family works in medicine. And it's like, Oh, you just have, um, generalized anxiety disorder. And, um, it's just, it's just genetic. It just is. And there's depression and there's bipolar in the family. So you might see those things too, you know? And it's Mm -hmm. like, um, so many people just accept that. And, um, and I'd love to know kind of your thoughts on, I guess, on genetics and how, um, how much that does shape, um, our mental well-being. Yeah, we, we accept that. And those of us that are, you know, in the field, whether it's in, you know, the field of mental wellness, like I am or, or med- medicine, like your entire family, we're, we're taught that that is that had been the predominant belief system. It's, it's one that's in, it's called genetic determinism, which essentially means that the genes that you get at birth are are your destiny. There is no change, like you said, very eloquently, right? If I have that genetic chip, for, you know, uh, generalized anxiety, for panic, or for heart issues. I mean, my mom has that as well. Uh, It's inevitable. I too have that genetic chip. And it's only a matter of time before, right, I get that condition. And my conversation, my options at that point are one of management. And I speak of this because I think a lot of us that are still in the field or that definitely came through training in the field, you know, it's understandable that we're still operating within that belief system because that's what's predominantly being taught. However, when I began to do research to see what the heck was wrong with me, I learned of a new science, um, one entitled epigenetics, which mm. does consider the the effective genes. Yes, we all have you know the genetic card deck for for lack of a better metaphor that we're born with. However, this is a much more empowering model because it highlights the importance of choices, of our lifestyle choices in particular. So essentially, simply, as I often speak, it says that, yes, we have genetics, 
And then we have the things that we're doing day in and day out, which do affect whether or not those genes are expressed. So really simply whether or not I get those symptoms or whether or not they're not. And this was the first time that I had ever seen the possibility of a conversation around healing outside of just symptom management, which is what I learned. And I became obviously very intrigued about this. What is this? I never heard of this and really went down the rabbit hole of this new science to begin to understand then my pathway to healing. However, and I, and I want to just wrap this back into, I think, you know, people still in the field stuck in that older model. It was really hard. I didn't believe it at first. I was kind of like rolling my eyes in, internally, like, okay, yeah, sure, I can change. I still have anxiety. I still, right, I'm going to get that symptom or get that diagnosis or that disease later in life. Um, on top of that, I spent a lot of time, years, effort, energy, right, believing this and investing my practice around this other model. So for me, it was shedding a lot. It was working through a lot of the resistance to do that shedding to really then embrace and embody um, creating change in my life. However, that was the real pivot point for me was just seeing that crack in the door. And then, like I said, it was my own journey into, okay, what are these lifestyle changes? How do I understand why I'm stuck? And then obviously create the pathway toward healing. So that part didn't come overnight, but that shift from my genes aren't my destiny to wait a minute. Um, I have a little bit more power than I believed. Um, that is what really, I believe, impacted my work fully. Yeah. So when you started discovering epigenetics and all of this, and you really were doing, you know, cause there, there really, there, there isn't a whole lot out there on it. Like it's starting to, I know that you have a book coming out, which we'll talk about in a bit, but, um, like, is the field changing? Are the textbooks changing yet? How does, is that, is that a thing? Uh, good question. Um, I've been out of school for a bit, so I'm not entirely sure. Um, I actually did look at my school curriculum uh, recently and I went to the new school in New York. And again, I'm not, I think people misunderstand when I just, when I, when I speak of what my, my experience was in school and they misunderstand, I'm, I'm not, that's why I, I added that part earlier. I understand why these systems are still as they are and are teaching as they yeah. are. Um, I'm definitely not bad mouthing them or, or not, you know, believing them to need to shut down or right. Though in reality, I'm not sure. I don't know how much these programs are really incorporating the whole holistic view of a human um, and are really starting to understand, especially trauma and the trauma field. I think that's a really big one, you know, really understanding that there we need to incorporate mind body wellness um in the way we treat trauma so whether or not it's mapping on to these programs um again i went through a clinical psychology program like i said earlier there's an, a lot of other types of licensure now that exist so i can't speak on you know whether or not these schools or programs have updated or not um, i'm hopeful that they will begin to um, and again that's like i said this isn't this isn't about tearing down the old model it's really just about informing i think people of of their full set of choices. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's move into then since we're talking about it into trauma, because this feels like it's kind of the hot topic of the healing world at the moment. Mm -hmm. Um, and there are a few people who I think are kind of pioneering this. I would consider you to be one of them, of course. And, um, Mastin Kip, I know is another one who, um, I really love what he has to say where, uh, about, kind of labels and 
how they're all called, you know, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, bipolar disorder. Um, and he, he says that we should really change, uh, the labels to not disorder, but to response. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I'd love for you to elaborate a bit on emotional trauma and how that can affect us. Because I think, you know, same thing, like my parents both come from a traditional medical system and I think most people actually just don't understand how emotional trauma could can affect someone and that it can affect someone just as much as physical trauma, like within the body, right? Mm-hmm. So it begins, Kelly, with us all acknowledging the simple fact that our minds and our bodies are connected, right? And for a very long time, you know, in, in, in adherence to that genetic model, another model that we really practiced in the field is this separatism, right? This idea that you go, if you have mental issues, I hate using that word, right? But diagnosis, these symptoms, struggles, you go to a doctor of the mind, right? And then obviously if you have physical issues, you go to your family, a medical doctor, right? And these were kept siloed separately. Um, And what we now know is that the mind and the body are much more in connection than we believe. So which brings us to the reality that, you know, emotional trauma does affect our body. Um, in particular, and I speak a lot about a particular um, system in our body, which is our nervous system. And a lot of us are living in dysregulated bodies, right? Stuck in those cycles of activation of maybe sympathetic fight or flight, like I was living in, completely overwhelmed, waiting for the next shoe to drop, looking for threats that I found around every corner, um, because my my I was primed, I was in that fight or flight, um, and or we can become just as much stuck in our parasympathetic, having very little energy, very little interest, barely can get out of bed. It very much looks like depression in a lot of ways. Um, obviously, the first scenario looks very much like anxiety uh, in a lot of ways, and we get stuck at the level of our body. Um, and the reason why I believe we've not been able to create change is because we've been trying to address it solely through the mind, right? Think different thoughts, CBT, the biggest gold standard, right? In the field right now is under this idea that if you change your thoughts, right, you can change the emotional experiences and the choices that you're making. While I do, that is part of my work and you'll read about the power of thoughts, um, in, in my new upcoming book. So it's part of the story. However, like I said, it's missing the body because when our body is dysregulated, it's continuously sending the messages of dysregulation up to our mind. And it's contributing then to us being stuck, whether it's in cyclical emotions or being stuck in the many ways that we've all very adaptively learned how to cope with those emotions, which include how we show up in our relationships or in our world. So I say all that to say, to work with trauma, you know, we need to incorporate the whole system, the whole person. I'm of the belief, you know, that there's another aspect of ourself beyond even the mind and the body, um, that very indescribable essence that makes us us, you know, whether or not you want to call it spirit or soul or, you know, the something else. Um, again, I am of the belief that we all have that unique essence in us. Um, and again, trauma also is, you know, affected or results in dysregulation or imbalance in that area. So when we try to address it from only one system, right, this idea of just think differently, um, for a lot of us, it, it creates a lot of shame. Um, not only does it not set us up to succeed and successfully change, because like I said, 
if I'm only trying to change my thoughts in a dysregulated body, unfortunately, I'm overriding the work I'm doing in my mind with the signals that my body is, is sending. Um, so we need to take a, a more full-pronged approach to actually truly, you know, create change and heal trauma. Yeah, yeah, agreed completely. And um, it's, you know, I think for me personally, I've, I've, I know that you have as well, you just mentioned it, but like have a real interest in, in spirituality, really. And it's so interesting to see so many people struggle and then turn down that road um, because I think that it's human nature. And I think is in the society we've been living in, we want evidence, right? Like we want physical evidence. We want to see, we want to see something in order to believe it. And that's the part of spirituality that is so difficult. I think for most people to really get is that, you know, we, you can't see it. Yeah. Um, so I'd love to know a bit about your kind of uh, relationship with spirituality and, and how it relates to your everyday life now, how, like, when did you, um, start becoming interested in it? I just would love to know how, like, what, what part does it play in your life? Yeah. So for, for a very long time, I, I was that human that you just described, you know, I was the scientist I mean, half of my degree, the, the PhD in clinical psychology, uh, assumed what is called a, I'm going to say it the other way around practitioner scientist, the scientist practitioner model. Um, so I learned to hang my hat on science. Um, so spirituality had no place in my life. Um, again, I was a little, I was raised, you know, in a Catholic somewhat practicing family. And I remember arguing with my dad, as, you know, as soon as I could begin to argue that I didn't want to go to church on Sunday. And, you know, that transferred into once I was free of the home, you know, I stopped practicing any organized religion. Again, um, I do separate that now religion from spirituality. However, for me at that time, it was one and the same. Um, and I did, you know, uh, bow to the God of science. I was the person, if I can't say it, if it can't be measured in a laboratory, um, then it's not real. And I was very schooled and savvy in understanding science and understanding the laboratories and understanding that a lot of things could be studied. However, I have come to realize um, many things about science, everything from it doesn't, we actually don't have all of the ability to study some of these indescribable phenomenon. We actually can explain some aspects mm -hmm. of human existence, right, through science to, you know, the reality that science is funded by someone, you know, and, and that does sometimes have an effect on the science that is practiced and the science that is touted and et cetera. So without going too much into science, I learned of the limitations of it. And I also, through my own healing journey, through beginning to practice, not only embodying myself as opposed to being so disassociated or disconnected, I began to practice connecting with that inner thing, right? And so for me, as I think a lot of us, I had to learn by doing, by experiencing it. So while I can't necessarily see, you know, I can't tell you where spirit lives or soul lives and, you know, teach someone how to, to connect with it. Through my own lived journey um, of connecting, you know, to my own inner being, I have convinced myself, and I actually see this pretty broadly in the collective happening. I think a lot of us are beginning to wake up, are beginning to see or feel that there is something indescribable there. Um, we might not have words for it, but we're beginning to entertain it. So my journey, um, I think, in a lot of ways reflects a lot of a lot of you know people out there, a lot of people that are still, you know, in the camp of, you know, science is God and I need to see it 
mapped on to data points to believe it to the gradual evolution. Um, and for me, same thing, shedding of identity, shedding of, you know, this reliance on the study outside of myself that's going to validate um, and be learning to rely on that inner, more indescribable self. And it didn't come overnight. Um, now it's very much a part of my life. Um, it's very much a part of my work. Um, and in my opinion, I, I see it being an increasingly more common part of the collective experience, which is why I think my work online, the community of self-healers that we built is is growing so quickly. Um, because like I said, I take that as an indication of this is starting to resonate quite globally. Yeah. And why do you think that is? I think a lot of people are, are, are having, you know, going through these inexplicable, you know, dark nights of the soul, having yeah. all of the things around themselves and not being able to make sense. And this is part of my journey too. I couldn't make sense of why I was struggling so much. None of the science pointed me in the direction, um, bringing trauma back in. You know, we, we began to document trauma. We defined trauma in the 90s through the ACEs scale. We, we did acknowledge scientifically that things that happen in childhood do carry long-term consequences in the forms of, you know, mental health diagnoses, symptomology at minimum and or physical health problems. Um, however, for me, I was an outlier. I only scored a one. That's a very low number. Why am I still struggling? Why do I still have the habits and the patterns, the unfulfillment. Um, so I think a lot of people similar to myself, we're just seeing, you know, we're living lives of, of everything from just un, like unfulfillment to actual, you know, kind of struggles, whether or not it's because we can't, you know, stop um, coping in the ways that aren't, that aren't, you know, benefiting us or whether or not it's we can't stop engaging in relationships that aren't benefiting us. Um, and I think that is contributing to us beginning to question a little bit um, and beginning to acknowledge that there is a much more expansive wounding that happens to most of us humans at a very early time in our life um, that we are carrying with us, again, through the mind, the body, being stuck in all of the ways that we've attempted to cope and that are contributing. Yeah. Yeah, I think that a lot of people resonate, or a lot of people listening will resonate with that because I had the exact same experience. I was like, "What is wrong with me? Like, nothing is point. Like, there's there's nothing else that I can point to here." Mm -hmm. um, and so, for those listening, we did touch on emotional trauma, but if we were to go into childhood a little bit more um, specifically, I'd love to talk a bit more. If you could point or you know, kind of touch on the both the mother wound and the father wound, so that. Again, those listening who haven't really explored this might be able to say, okay, oh, maybe I do. So uh, I had a few friends. Have you heard of the Hoffman process? Hoffman? I don't yeah, think Hoffman. so. So it's a it's like a week-long, um, you go, it started in the, in the UK, actually, I think, but it's also in the US. You go away for a week, all cell phones away. Um, I did it back in 2017, I believe. And it's like this deep dive into childhood. Um, and at the time I was like, nothing was wrong with my childhood. Like I had a couple of friends who had done it and, and I was like, that, you know, that's great. They had, they had really obviously traumatic childhoods. Um, and then I, I decided to go and I left and all of a sudden I was like, oh shit. And don't get me wrong. Like my parents are incredible people and they're actually, you know, as I said to you, we're having, I'm at home right now and having this amazing time and both of them work in the healthcare field and they're both 
really interested in all of this. And we've been having a lot of conversations about their childhoods and, and my childhood and our relationships and all of that, um, which has been so amazing and so healing, but it took us a little while to get there. You know, it took, took us, you know, when I first started bringing this stuff up, it felt like a personal attack on them, um, which I think is really common. So I'd love to talk a bit about the mother wound, um, and the father wound and also kind of your, your experiences with that, because I know that you, you've also talked about how, um, you, your family hasn't been historically all that responsive to, to, to your work. Am I, am I right in saying that? Um, so I have an interesting, I'll, I'll share, you know, in answering my, my journey with my family, because it, it has been a journey. Um, and I wouldn't necessarily, they weren't responsive. Um, I think there's definitely different ways that we can True. be responsive, True. Um, right? You know, so I will start with, um, I'm talking a little more generally, uh, our relationships, our earliest relationships impact us. Um, regardless of how it is you believe we come to be having this earth experience as human infants, when we arrive here, we are in a complete state of dependency, meaning really simply the human infant can't survive alone. It can't meet its own. I mean, predominantly at first physical needs, um, and it needs the help and the support of caregivers. Now, okay. Acknowledging that we all are born into different family environments, you know, in different cultures and different, you know, uh, countries and different macro systems. It's those earliest relationships that matter the most to us. Cause like I said, we have needs, in my opinion, in my belief, we have physical needs, we have emotional needs, and we have those needs of the soul or that inner essence. Um, those needs are to be seen, to be heard, and to have the space to just be the individual spirit and uniqueness that one is as an infant. So from that state of dependency, we are incredibly adaptive. And our brain is actually primed in a, what, what is known as a theta brainwave state. It's what it contributes to the very wide-eyed look of human infants and toddlers, right, taking the world in around them. So we're learning and we're forming relationships so that we can continue to get our needs met. And, you know, when we talk about mother, father, wound, again, it, it, it's really kind of whatever core predominant relationship is there is going to create the most impact for us. Because what in absence of having a very attuned caregiver who can care for their own physical, emotional, and spiritual needs, meaning they know how to identify their own and take care of themselves so that they're in a regulated state so that then when their infant, right, falls into dysregulation or is in a need-based state, the infant's hungry, the infant or the toddler is sad, right, the parent, this is all ideal, the parent can contain, you know, whatever that brings up for them and arrive in an attuned, receptive way to help their child, to meet their child where their child is, to acknowledge that their child is a separate individual who might tolerate sadness differently, who might cope with sadness differently, and to, of course, help the child to explore the ways that work for them. The child is also in a unique body, right? It's probably going to maybe respond to foods differently, sleep differently, et cetera. So in absence of that level of attunement, which let's be honest, very few of us have because we were all raised by humans that were teaching us to the best of their abilities. So meaning, right, generations that came before our even parents were very limited in how the tools they had. A lot of them were limited in the environments that they were growing up in, growing up in re-traumatizing environments. I mean, a lot of us are still currently living in re-traumatizing environments, making that level of attunement difficult. 
So what happens in us then as the infant, toddler, et cetera, right? The very attuned, adaptive little human, we begin to make compromises. We begin to learn how to show up. We begin to take on the habits that we're seeing modeled around us because modeling is one of the most powerful teachers. Um, a lot of us would, would, would wish, you know, it's the, the old adage, you know, do as I say, not as I do. Unfortunately, children are, are more impacted by what they're seeing. So before we know it, we have these conditioned patterns around how we care for our physical body, how we care for our emotional body, and how we care for our, our spiritual essence. And then we repeat them in relationships. So here's where the idea of mother-father wounding comes in. A lot of us begin to, you know, assume roles. We become the helper, the caregiver. A lot of us tend to maybe ostracize certain emotions. We've learned that sadness or anger doesn't fly here in this relationship, right? And then we continue to become very patterned. That becomes the only way we know how to operate in our relationship. So very generally, that's what wounding is, right? Those core needs that went unmet. And then what we do in response to an adaptive response to those woundings, those roles, that becomes our attempt at coping. They become our coping patterns and they become what I call our trauma bonds, our very familiar ways of engaging in relationships that keep us securely, or so we think, getting those very constricted needs met. The issue is in either of these, mother, father, wound, you know, whatever the relationship pattern is that I'm showing up. It's not serving me. The issue is it's, it, it is typically not serving our full self in one or many ways, right? We are showing up in ways that don't allow us to care for our physical body, or perhaps we're showing up in ways, if we were that example that I mentioned earlier, not allowing our negative, for lack of a better word, I don't like using that term, but sadness, right? The lower emotions yeah. that come out. Yeah. Um, uh, and then, like I said, spiritually, we learn not to show up in our full essence because that was, you know, we, an experience allowed us to feel shame as a result of it. Um, and then, like I said, that all still lives within us and that becomes, um, I think that source of imbalance that shifts us. So the wounding, right, is the unmet need, um, that was consistently, I just want to reiterate that this isn't the one off where, you know, mom had a bad day and wasn't able to be there for you. This was, so I'll use my example, my mother, right? Always like on edge waiting for very real, um, you know, kind of things that she was dealing with parenting her, I mean, caring for herself, you know, as a human who was struggling emotionally and therefore physically parenting my sister, right? Her attention was always on the next thing that was happening and not necessarily emotionally available for me. So for me, the, the wounding was not having that core caregiver to be present to me and my emotions, to have, to, to create the space and to see me as I expressed myself, that was the wounding. And now I'll wrap this all full circle. And my adaptation was, I learned how to be as connected to my mom in particular as I could be. And the way I learned was to perform, was to show her that A, that I knew she wanted, was to be the division one softball pitcher that I knew that made her happy, right? So that's then how we kind of have coped with our wounding um, through our relationships. And then that transferred, I should mention. Then I was the person, right, who performed, who met everyone else and their needs first in all of my relationships. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I think that so many people will resonate with that. And hopefully some puzzle pieces will start to sort of connect um, because as we all know, this year has been absolutely insane. And I think that, you know, I feel like I can see the silver lining in that. Sometimes I feel like an asshole for saying that for people who are really struggling, because I know that people are really struggling. Um, but this year is really bringing forward a lot of, uh, it feels like to me, um, an opportunity for people to really heal. That's coming from someone who, who has the tools now to, um, to kind of, you know, deal with what's happening. Um, and sort of, I feel like I, I actually have been thriving through it. Um, but I'm sure that, I mean, your following has grown massively, which just goes to show how much people are seeking answers and are seeking just something else because what, the way that things currently are, are going isn't isn't working. And have you seen any like really common threads, um, amongst followers? I know you don't work with the clients one-on-one anymore, but like, um, are you seeing mostly anxiety, mostly depression, or does it feel like it's kind of everything? And, 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 and is, and do those, do you feel like labels even really can, can be applied? Yeah. So I, I, in terms of, I'm seeing, let me back up this 2020 in, in all of it, it's, it's glory. I'm definitely not meeting that word. 2020 for many of us being, we're talking trauma, right. Is very activating on many levels from the most simplistic. I call it a pattern interrupt. Our daily life looks very different than it did in 2019, right? Many of us aren't getting up at the same time, going to work the same way, doing the same things. And the reason I'm mapping that out in, into trauma is because that familiar, whenever our familiar is removed from us suddenly, right, we are into the unfamiliar. And there's a part of our brain, the subconscious, that fears that unfamiliar, that believes that that which is not predictable. So just to be clear, familiar doesn't mean positive, right? It doesn't mean good. It just means that which I know, right? So this could, for a lot of us, be those I went to that negative, terrible job, right? So it's like, oh, on the one hand, this should be a relief. I don't have to go and see that boss any longer. However, to my subconscious and the most simplistic way, it's unfamiliar. It's different. My life at home, I don't know what that could look like. It's the unknown. So that could be possibly threatening. Now, this gets complicated further by those of us that have, right, that were carrying trauma from our childhood. And then it's complicated further by what is our life looking like now? (laughs) Who are we home with? Are we losing jobs and money further traumatizing us? Mm. So very globally, um, I think a lot of us are being activated, uh, you know, in in that way. Um, A lot is coming to the surface. Um, A lot of our relationships are being challenged. um, And a lot of us are are struggling um, in all of the ways, like I said, from very simply life doesn't look the same um, to I'm actually, you know, re-traumatizing. A lot of things are happening when my core needs aren't being met. Those of us that are losing jobs that are, you know, financially now insecure, all of these situations to those of us that are, you know, at home now in relationships, you know, that maybe aren't the healthiest for us. um, We're carrying all of that. So whether or not it looks like you know, anxiety symptoms increasing or panic attacks increasing or possibly depression increasing. Um, it's all, I believe, coming from the same place, that activation 
of these this deeper wounding that you know everything that 2020 is um, has done for most of us in one way or another. And in terms of labeling, you know what it is or what it isn't. Um, you know, I, I have my opinions on labeling. I think some of us can find solace in having a name for what I'm struggling mm-hmm. with or, you know, a concept to hang around it. Uh, and I also can see another side of labeling that can be possibly problematic, just continuing to keep us stuck in that label. If we reduce ourselves right to only then the label, whether it's the anxious you know, child like I was, we can risk possibly limiting ourselves from ever evolving out of that label. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so going back to 2020 and this crazy year, um, I know that, you know, you have your book coming out and all of that, but do you have like, I was going to say top three, it doesn't matter how many it could be one, like what, what, I guess in your own in your own sort of healing journey and through what you discovered, what are your most sort of basic tips or starting places for people who feel like they're at they're in their dark night or at their rock bottom and don't really know where to go? Um, you know, I know that you have your, uh, your journaling practice that I'd love for you to talk about. And, and when we had our one-on-one session, I remember you, really kind of introducing me to breathing and breathing techniques and that kind of stuff? Yeah. So, so foundationally, you'll, you'll hear me talk about a core foundational piece, um, which is a practice of daily consciousness. Um, And that really, I developed a way to integrate that into my, into my daily life through a journaling practice. So just what do I mean by consciousness? Everything that we're talking about, all of this trauma, all of these age-old wounds, and all of these very pattern ways of being actually live in a place in our mind called the subconscious. And we are very much like computers, the computer analogy. We are very much like that autopilot program. Um, The reason we are stuck is because the large majority of us, up to 95% of our day, are operating in from those subconscious programming. So this is what really explained why in myself and in the very insightful, you know, clients that I would see week after week, year after year in my old practice, this really explained why change wasn't happening. Very much insight, right? New plans of actions were being made from a different part of our mind, the conscious part of our mind when we're in session or when we're not in that right activating moment with my partner at home. And then lo and behold, when I'm home or when I'm outside of session, most of us are falling back into those subconscious programming. And then we're coming back in week after week, um, feeling like many of us do, shameful, possibly even entertaining this idea of brokenness. I can't change. This is, this is my life now because I can't actually bridge from insight to action. Um, so consciousness is incredibly foundational because in my opinion, consciousness is where we create the opportunity to change. We have to learn how to operate from a different part of our mind so that we can create choice outside of those old programs. Most of us are just letting the programs make our choices, which is why we're left not only feeling stuck, but often feeling really reactive and therefore disempowered. It really does feel like the world around us is happening to us and we have no chance. Because once that thing happens, right, my program fires the exact same thing I do every time that one thing happens, and I can't create change. And again, it's because I'm not operating 
from the conscious part of my mind. So creating a new habit of consciousness, um, whether it's through, you know, a, a sitting meditation practice where I learn how to just be present, you know, in my body, separate from my thinking mind, which is where a lot of us spend most of our time, or whether or not we just begin to practice as I did, because sitting for me in the beginning was completely overwhelming. Um, whether or not I was having racing thoughts or just complete agitation in my body, I could not do it. Um, so I began to practice creating conscious moments in my day. And so we all know what we're talking about. Consciousness lives in the current moment. Consciousness lives when I'm fully present to what's actually happening here and now. So the more I, whether it's through breath work, um, our breath can become, I call it a hook for our attention. Instead of my mind being in the fight with my partner this morning or you know, my, my worry about tomorrow's meeting with my boss, if I can unhook my attention, right, from my thinking mind, where it is for most of us, and bring it back to my breath, using my breath as that hook, or my senses, right? What can I feel in this moment? What can I, what can I smell, right? Am I doing the dishes? And can I feel and smell the soap going over my hands? Another hook for my attention, right? My the sensory experience of the given moment. And when I become alive and present in my body, so when I'm able to be here now, now I know that I'm actually firing up a different part of my brain, the conscious part of my brain. Now, the caveat here is this isn't like a light switch. Uh, I can't practice this once. I can't even get off my meditation in the cushion in the morning if I go right back to my subconscious, right? My unconscious, my program. So I need to learn how to spend as much time in consciousness as possible, meaning begin with one moment where I check in with myself throughout my day. Maybe I set an alarm on my phone and when it goes off, I either use my breath or my senses to bring my attention from wherever it was into the present moment. And then I do that for a good handful of days. And then I practice doing it two moments each day. And each time we're doing it, while it is quote unquote work, it's effort. I have to practice this, if you will. The beautiful part of our human brain is that it can change. And that each time you're wiring up the firing now of this new conscious prefrontal cortex, you're teaching your brain how to do that. So you're facilitating it getting easier over time. In my opinion, though, that's where change, the foundation for change happens. I have to learn to be conscious to myself so that then I can start to make new choices in any or all of those areas where I could be benefited, such as creating new habits to care for my physical body so that I can be in a state of regulation, which do inc does include breath work, helping my nervous system to perhaps relax from that state of hypervigilance or hypovigilance back into right, a baseline of Perhaps many of us, I know I did, have to learn a new way to deal with emotions, right? My spaceship wasn't working. So in those moments where my choice is subconsciously jump on my spaceship or do something new, I have to learn how to consciously show up and practice new things. Spiritually, same thing. I have to learn how to consciously be connected to myself so that I can know what I want to express should it be safe enough to do so in that moment. And all of that begins when I begin to be conscious because I expand into the possibility of choice. Yeah. So I know the answer to this question. I, I was going to ask you, do you still struggle? I'd love for you to talk to, a bit on this um, because I know that um, basically that like this healing work actually doesn't really ever end. But I mm -hmm. guess what I'm asking is like, um, 
in terms of the anxiety or the panic attacks or the stuff that you were experiencing heavily kind of in your dark night, are you still, um, do you ever still get that stuff? I don't get, I, I do not get panic attacks anymore. I do get agitated. I do have, mm-hmm. you know, that's my new language for anxiety. I have my vigilance system that kicks in. Um, I can obviously, I have new choices now, whether or not I employ those choices at all times, right? Not always. We all, I think, have that slippery slope um, where we go back to those old habits and patterns. However, something that I have accumulated over doing the work and showing up for myself and practicing, you know, these new ways of being each and every day, I now trust myself. I now trust that even if there's a few days, you know, especially around my period where I'm a little more irritable and I'm a little more likely to go down that slippery slope of old reactivity, you know, I now don't fear that I'm going to go down to the bottomless pit of who I once was. I now have the confidence that I can check myself, that I can catch myself, that the next time I can, you know, um, summon my resources to make that new choice, I can and I will. Um, So yes, I absolutely still struggle. I imagine I will, we will always, we're evolving creatures. This is another thing that challenges us as humans. We don't like change. And I'm only 38. I hope to live many more years. I don't know what 48 feels like. I don't know what 68 feels like. I don't know what new challenges in life come my way. So, you know, this idea of done, I desperately search for it. I don't feel it exists. Um, That's why what I believe the work is about is empowering the self within to be able to walk into the unknown tomorrow and to figure our way through it. Yeah. So the struggle never ends. And so my next question was going to be to you, do you believe that full healing is possible? Depends on, I mean, what are, how are we defining full healing? You know, do we? Right. Right. So, I mean, obviously I wouldn't consider struggle as a part of the healing process, but in terms of like, if someone is, has received the label of anxiety disorder or is experiencing panic attacks and thinks they're going to have them forever, you know, that, that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. So I will say that I I guarantee I would not be diagnosed with either at this point. Um, So yes, um, healing in that extent. I, I don't believe necessarily, you know, this idea of full healing going back right to this, this state of, None of my experiences affected me. I don't think that's the case. Um, We learn to live and we learn to allow our life experiences to shape us. However, we learn in in my work, or I hope through through my work and work that others, similar others are doing, we learn how to, you know, not become that past story. We learn how to integrate that as in part of us, uh, but not the full story of us. And that's what I believe true healing is because you know, there, there's a lot in our journeys that we learn from and that now many of us teach from that actually inspire and help others. So, you know, I think that that type of healing is absolutely possible. And I believe that that is the journey that so many of us are on now together. Yeah. Yeah. When I was going to ask you, how do you feel now? Because it sounds, you know, like it's so, it's like, I mean, it's just so obvious that you are so, so very much in, in your purpose. Um, and just kind of comparing where you are now to to where you were. Oh, it's it's it, it almost feels like I actually put up a nine year ago picture of myself uh, yesterday, contrasted mm. with with the now and just the visual of it and reliving that story for myself. I mean that 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 person is still there um, in me. I just in so many ways, I I just feel like a new human that I'm creating. 
Um, I feel empowered to create a future now of my choosing um, coming from very much one that, like I said, I I believe was chosen for me. Um, So I think all of the ways, you know, my life looks and feels different um, the way, whether that's just, like I said, my overall mindset of, you know, who I am and what I am and what I'm doing um, to just the daily way I navigate my life. And I anticipate that they'll, they'll continue to be an evolution in my experience of myself. And I look forward to showing up consciously for it. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Um, and what are your daily practices now? Like what is, what is your, what do your daily practices look like for yourself? Yeah. So my daily, it's, it's, it is a daily practice It you know, starts with, I wake up in the morning, um, I do my conscious intention setting through future self journaling, which really is just each and every day I'm you know, setting the intention for the change that I'm continuing to work to create in my life. For me, doing it in the morning is really helpful because it primes me for my day. It helps me remember to you know, show up differently in those really pivotal moments. Because that's where change comes. Like I said, that's the gap between, oh, I'm intending to do differently and I'm doing differently. Um, Mm -hmm. Obviously, the second step being much more difficult because I, too, have that autopilot. Um, I have the pull of discomfort. I don't necessarily always want to do the unfamiliar new thing. So for me, journaling helps. Um, Also, around my morning routine, I, you know, make sure I get a quiet moment. So whether or not it's sit and meditate or, you know, I'll take a beach walk where I'll just be present to myself consciously and I'll meditate I'm definitely doing some version of breath work. Um, For me, it's not necessarily a contained practice where I'm sitting and doing breath work at a particular time. For me, breath work is being conscious to my breathing throughout my day and using the power of the breath to help me regulate. Um, This seems very simplistic. I notice when I'm becoming agitated, when I'm going in the direction of what, what I once was debilitated by in terms of anxiety and panic, I tend to hold my breath. So now when I'm conscious and I catch myself holding my breath, I can utilize my breath to help me regulate. So breath work is something that I carry throughout my day. Um, In terms of lifestyle, you know, I'm very conscious around the food I'm eating, in particular, how I feel once I've eaten it. I'm very intentional around my sleep habits. I'm in bed quite early because for me, I had a time in my life where I got very little sleep. I was up thinking anxious thoughts all night long. Um, now that I've began to, you know, create a, a, a habit of sleeping that I actually sleep through the night, sleep is incredibly important. Um, so a lot of the things I'm doing are just wrapped up into how I'm living my day. I mean, I've always, this sounds silly, I've always eaten, I've always slept, right? Now I'm doing so consciously because I'm aware yeah. of the shifts and changes and how they affect me. Um, and then I take that into consideration, you know, when I make my next choice in those areas. Yeah. Well, and that goes into that consciousness piece, right? Like the self-awareness is just becoming aware of, of what you're doing each day and in each moment, because it often takes something like the dark night or the rock bottom for us to kind of wake up to that. Um, because otherwise most humans are just kind of, we, we get into these, um, cycles or just kind of operating from the subconscious mind and, and we're, we're just totally unaware of the fact that we're breathing really from like hardly even breathing. Actually, I know for myself, like I still catch myself sometimes I, I, like, I'm like, how is the, how has any oxygen even gotten into my body? I'll realize <laughs> how shallow my breath is. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it really feels like it is so much about that kind of hitting 
or just, just waking up to, to, and becoming aware of, of our surroundings. Um, so I would love to now ask you before we started, you told me that you were going to tell me about your sister. Yeah, absolutely. So I already wove her in a little bit. Um, I'm going to share a little bit about my sister, um, because I think in a lot of ways, and this is how this all wraps in, you know, all of these conditioned ways that we've been operating in life in, in a very deep way, you know, contribute, and I'm going to really simplify this, but contribute to the story about ourselves that we tell us, right? What we're capable of, what we're not, you know, the type of personality, quote unquote, we have, and we don't, the things that we achieve in life, how we're treated in relationships, right? All of our experiences, right, are accumulated into a narrative, in a sense. We have, the human brain is a narrative-making machine. It's how we prefer to understand ourselves and the life around us. Um, and I, I, I know in myself and in pretty much all of us, the narrative that many of us are telling ourselves day in and day out don't, don't serve us. Um, and I, I know many of the older narratives that I'm still working on recreating for myself to create change. And I know how limiting those narratives can be. And, you know, my sister is someone, you know, whom I believe operates within very limiting narratives um, that, you know, I think the vantage point of being someone outside of ourselves. So for me, I'm her sister. I can observe mm-hmm. upon her, um, just like my partner or she, my sister can observe upon me. Quite mm-hmm. oftentimes, the objectivity, right, that someone else can offer can be a little more accurate. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So for my sister, you know, I've been able to see really firsthand, you know, I'm very aware of what she believes about herself. Um, and then I have a different narrative based on what I know about her and her past mm-hmm. and how I experience her. Um, so I think she's really emblematic of a lot of us. So my sister, like I said, is someone who from a very, very young age, um, before I believe she was even maybe three, we're talking really young. Like I sa- said, she had pretty severe asthma. Um, and as the result of a really severe asthma attack, um, she was emergent, you know, went into the emergency room. And as a result of, I guess, the work that they were doing on her at the time, um, a situation, I don't have all the exact medical details, but a situation, you would probably know better than that, but a situation was created mm-hmm. where she needed to be traced. And at that time, um, most children at that age who were traced needed to live in a hospital um, for care. My mother and my father at that time were very adamant that they wanted her to have, you know, quote unquote, as normal of a life as possible. So they actually, so this story is actually indirectly about my mom too, um, very strong woman, I believe. So my mom and my dad learned how to care for my sister. They helped, my brother helped, they learned how to care for a, a young, young child with a pretty life-threatening, you know, trach, um, you know, uh, breathing issue at home. So that she could have, like I said, as normal of a life as possible. It wasn't quote unquote normal in many ways. There was many things she couldn't do, um, but they definitely tried to facilitate as much normalcy as possible. There was a lot of bullying. Once she became school aged as a result of her trach, she spoke very deep. Um, kids liked to call her dark Darth Vader and created a lot of pain for mm-hmm. herself. Um, at this point, right, you know, what I'm imagining began to happen is a narrative of sickness was created. I'm a sick human. Um, you know, I'm not accepted with my peers because I'm different. I mean, her life objectively was different. She looked different. She did different things. She sounded different. She needed different levels of care. 
Uh, flash forward into, you know, I guess once her body started physically developing, they came to realize that she had pretty severe scoliosis, uh, scoliosis that would warrant she actually had to have an operation. The whole family was flown out um, to Cincinnati. I was here at the time. I think I was around three years old. Um, and my sister had two metal rods put in her back. She still has a really severe curvature. Um, wow. However, right, so she now had this, I think she was 14. Uh, no, if I was, she was 18, she must have been if I was three. So she now, 18 years old, really pivotal developmental phase, right? She now has this surgery that I can't imagine how long the recovery was, learning how to walk again with rods in her back, et cetera, right? Further strengthening this story of limitation, of sickness, of things I can't do. And I watch, so ever since, you know, I've become conscious and I've known my sister, I hear remnants of this narrative. I hear her speaking in direct and indirect ways around these limitations. Now, physically, she's, she's healthy, she's functioning, she's, you know, doesn't need medication or support in either of those areas. So none of the evidence, right, is supporting this idea of I'm still sick. Um, though in a lot of ways, I see how that narrative just permeates her life. And so... As an outside observer, what I see and what my narrative is about my sister and by extension, my mom and my dad even, right, who, who at the time were incredibly empowered, strong humans, right, I see a different narrative. I see a narrative of resilience. I see a narrative of overcoming incredible, you know, not only at any, at any stage of the game, incredible medical complications and all that comes with it. But my sister having done so developmentally at all of these critical times, um, and I see her as a strong, as a resilient being, as one who is so beyond capable of, of really anything, and yet I still watch and witness. And she herself has, has gone through um, you know, a, lot of, a lot of work, a lot of changing. She's on her own healing journal in a lot of ways. She is moving toward incredible empowerment, and I'm so beyond proud of her. And I still see the ways, right, that these narratives of limitation, just like I see in myself, um, permeate yeah. her life. So those are the yeah. stories I wanted to share. Um, because like I said, I know a lot of us just in our personal lives, we tell ourselves stories of limitation, whether or not it's around our physical capabilities um, or, you know, just our emotional or, or what we're deservant of in life. And I've had a front row seat to, you know, observing my mom and my sister and still witnessing the ways that they're empowering themselves and growing and also the ways that, you know, they're entertaining those older narratives that are keeping themselves limited. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I, I did, I've done a couple of, um, Lacey Phillips's workshops to be magnetic and, and in one of the, I know you were on her podcast. Um, in one of them, you have to, uh, ask three people who you, I think three to five people, I don't remember the exact instructions, but basically people who are close to you, ask them, um, like what triggers them about you, um, or ways in which they see you kind of hindering, uh, yourself. And so I did that with a couple of my closest friends and it is amazing to, to get that objective perspective on yourself. And it was so amazing because all three of them came back with almost exactly the same ways in which they thought that I was, um, sort of holding myself back and, uh, they were all ways in which I couldn't see. So, um, 
it, it can be, you definitely want to trust people who, who you, who you ask that question to, but, um, but yeah, I think it's a really, really beautiful point in just showing how, um, just how much we are affected by the stories that we paint for ourselves and that we've been living in a society that just has not been very nice and that we've kind of been taught to sort of put ourselves down and compare, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think some of it, yeah, is very kind of micro and depending on what narratives are, you know, uh, presented in our family of origin out to the very, very macro um, to what humanity and we've been told as humans that we're capable and not capable of. And like I said, I think we're at a place of really challenging some of these narratives from the micro to the macro, the individual to the collective. Um, and it's, it's, it's challenging all the same. And I think, you know, even the process of hearing, right, hearing other people's, you know, um, stories about us and how they perceive us, while yes, not all of it, you know, is, 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 are things that are helpful. Uh, my goal is always to empower ourselves to be able to take in the feedback, to be able to sift through, you know, what's ours um, and what isn't ours. So that is, you know, I think very, very helpful um, in a lot of us. So one of the main intentions of the self-healer movement and the community that I that I value so much um, is to create the safe space, is to, to help, yeah. you know, each yeah. of us find those humans if we don't have them you know, in our personal lives currently to find those safer humans that, that, you know, do get it, that are on this journey and that can possibly either, you know, provide those objective vantage points for ourselves and or to create the safety and the security and relationships that so many of us not have not had. Yeah. Yeah. So now that we're there, let's talk a bit. Um, let's kind of, <laughs> we could probably keep going on and on, but um, we're an hour and 15 in. So <laughs> let's try try and wrap it up with telling or talking about um, your book and kind of the self-healers community, which I love because <clears throat> as we've both kind of gone experienced, um, it has been in a lot of ways, a self-healing journey for you. I know it has been for myself. Obviously that's what so many people are waking up to. I know that you have your online community, which um, you can, you probably would be way bigger if you could handle it. I'm sure. Is that, am I wrong in saying that? Well, the goal is to to increase it. We just actually got some technology that we've been creating this past year that's going to allow us to be able to facilitate the sort of interactive community that we're very interested in. So Great. very exciting. But the book, so then you, so you also have the book coming out, which will be really helpful for anyone else who's interested in kind of taking their own self-healing path. Absolutely. So yeah, the new book is, is, was such an amazing opportunity that was offered to me, gosh, about a year and a half ago now, um, as you know, the opportunity to be able to put down this whole you know, theory of holistic wellness um, beyond what I can provide on Instagram in those squares. While it's been an incredible tool and I'll continue to show up for me, it's my way to you know, level the playing field and, and promote the accessibility of what I believe are all of these attainable methods um, to begin to create change regardless of you know, our circumstances, acknowledging our outer circumstances, but, you know, making sure that there's access wherever we are. Um, and so the book for me, so Instagram, like I, I guess, let me say that Instagram is always going to be part of it. Um, yeah. And the book is, like I said, the kind of start to finish what is holistic healing and what are, what are the daily tools and practices we can begin to integrate um, change really in our lives. So it's called how to do the work. It'll officially be alive in the world March 9th. It's currently on pre-sale. Um, and I'm just so excited for it to, to be out there because I think it's going to be incredibly impactful for so many of us. That is really exciting. 
Um, and for anyone else who's listening, who doesn't already follow you, um, and you're 3.1 million. That is, that's so crazy. How amazing is that? That you have 3.1 million followers. Wild. Wild. Blows my mind. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. I just, you're like dream guest. So I'm so grateful. Of course. This was an honor. I'm really happy we were able to connect in this way. So thank you for having me, Kelly. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Dr. Nicole. I will put all of her info, her, her Instagram, her new book information, anything we mentioned in the episode in the show notes. Um, if you have any questions or comments for me, please feel free to send me a DM or an email. I love hearing from you. And as always, thank you for listening. Thank you.